Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 211 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Harriet Tubman. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery. Despite this, she not only escaped and made it to freedom... She became a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and she helped numerous other people to, to freedom as well. During this time, she had many amazing experiences, including visions and paranormal experiences. So who was Harriet Tubman? What happened during her dramatic life? And why did she have such extraordinary experiences? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to say as background to this story? We need to set the context for Harriet Tubman's life by looking at the institution of slavery, uh, both in world history and in relation to American history, where it came to be intertwined with the subject of race. Both slavery and race can be very sensitive subjects, even though the vast majority of people in America today fortunately believe that both slavery and racism are evil. There are still a lot of passionate feelings about it, particularly in America, which is still healing from our national experience with the institution. Here on Mysterious World, I seek to look at historical mysteries in a rigorously truthful way. And I find that the best way to understand the truth about a situation is to present the facts in a calm, objective way. Like I do uh, when I do debates as an apologist, I try to be as calm and objective as possible. And that makes me a more effective debater, because if my opponent and the audience sees me being calm and objective, they can't easily set aside what I'm saying on the grounds that I'm being emotional or that my emotions are distorting my judgment. So the more calmly and objectively I present the facts, the more convincing I'm likely to be in winning people to the view that I'm advocating. I applied the same principle here on Mysterious World when looking at controversial issues, like in episode 113 on the desperate coup in Japan at the end of World War II, where I sought to present the facts in a calm, objective manner, even though the coup plotters were murderers and wartime enemies of America. Or in episodes 192 and 193 on Our Lady of Cabejo where I sought to talk about the Rwandan genocide in a calm, objective manner, simply stating the facts about what happened between the Hutus and the Tutsis. So in this episode, I will, again, try to calmly and objectively state the facts about what happened in history. My goal, as always, is to get to the truth. Understanding the truth is the best way to be liberated from the evils of the past. We have it on the word of no less a person than Jesus Christ himself, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And America most definitely needs to be freed from the evil legacies of slavery and racism so that we can all embrace each other in mutual love as children of God. Very good. So let's start with the issue of slavery. What is it? And how should it be defined? 
There's no universal agreement among historians or linguists on the definition of slavery because it's taken different forms in human history. Slaves always had fewer rights than the people who owned them, but how many rights they had varied. In some cultures, they had virtually none. Sometimes slave owners could do almost anything to their slaves, though they usually couldn't simply kill them. In almost every culture, killing a slave was regarded as murder, so at least they had a right to life. But in other cultures, they had significant rights and could earn their own money and even become wealthy. In Rome, slaves could have their own houses, their own money, and even own their own slaves. Uh, Surprisingly, in some cases, masters and slaves even switched places, such as during the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, in which the slaves temporarily became masters and the masters temporarily became slaves. Sometimes slaves could uh, become highly prestigious, influential people in society. For example, the Roman emperor Claudius had a slave named Narcissus, who he eventually freed. I haven't been able to determine the date at which Narcissus became a freedman, but he was literate and served as Claudius's secretary. So he was handling correspondence on high government affairs affecting the empire. Uh, Claudius also appointed him to the high and highly prestigious office of praetor. And because of his influential positions, Narcissus became a wealthy man with a personal fortune of around 400 million sesterces. That would be something like $4 billion today, though it's really hard to compare the value of Roman money to today's money. So the conditions of slaves have varied across world history, both during the period of their servitude and after they became freedmen. Are there any conditions that apply to slaves worldwide? It seems to me that three conditions are virtually universal. First, slaves were not members of the family that owned them. Uh, Second, slaves were expected to perform some kind of work or provide some kind of service. And third, they were legally tied to their owners so that they couldn't just quit and find another job. I just propose a basic definition of slavery as an arrangement in which a non-family member is required to do work and is not legally allowed to quit. Why is the fact slaves were not family members important? Because historically, most families were so poor that they needed everybody to pitch in and do work just in order to keep the family fed. Since the agricultural revolution in the Neolithic period, most people have been farmers until recently. And on farms, children are expected to perform chores like watching the flocks, feeding the animals, milking the animals, collecting the eggs, helping plant the crops, helping harvest the crops and so on. But people recognize that having family members do these things is in a different moral category than slavery. Families are bound together by natural law, and natural law indicates that they need to help each other to survive. So if the parents give life to the children and help educate them, protect them, and keep them fed, it's legitimate if the family needs the children to help out. So it's legitimate for the parents to require the children to do their chores and help the family survive. That's morally different than taking a stranger and forcing him to do labor on behalf of the family. Similarly, husbands and wives in families both have jobs they need to do for the family, and they can't simply quit these jobs. Someone is not living up to their responsibilities as a husband or a wife if they are able to help the family and simply refuse to do so. 
So whether they viewed slavery as moral or immoral, people have always recognized that members of families are in a different category than slaves, a slave being someone who is not a family member and yet is required to do work on the behalf of the family and who can't quit. Under that definition, some forms of slavery would still exist today, wouldn't they? Most definitely. In fact, in some parts of the world, slavery continues to be legal. We'll have a link to where you can read about that. In other parts of the world, slavery is illegal, but still takes place as a criminal activity due to human trafficking rings. And in other places, a kind of de facto slavery exists, even if it doesn't go by that name. For example, governments may draft people into the armed forces, in which case the conscripts are required to do military work in wartime or otherwise on behalf of the nation, and they're not allowed to quit until their term in the armed forces is up. And in prisons, convicts can be required to do work if they're medically able, and they're not allowed to quit until their prison term is up. Both of those would technically be forms of slavery, and people don't typically consider them wrong. Individuals have a responsibility toward the country that provides them with safety and economic opportunity, and many countries have deemed it appropriate to have a mandatory form of national service, including military service. Similarly, if an individual has harmed society, been convicted of his crimes, and is now being given free room and board in a prison where he can't further harm society, then many people would say he should do what work he can to make a contribution to the society he harmed, including to help pay something toward his upkeep. And so the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which was passed after the Civil War, states, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So some forms of compulsory servitude still exist today, though they're in a different moral category than taking an innocent stranger and forcing him to do labor for you. How widespread has slavery been in history, and when did it start? Slavery goes back to prehistoric times, though it may not go all the way back through human history because it's uncommon in hunter-gatherer societies. It does exist in some of them, but it's not common, so it may not go all the way back. Instead, it may be, or at least its popularization, may be the result of the agricultural revolution that began in the Neolithic period or New Stone Age. At this point, the development of agriculture meant that people started living in settled communities and producing more food. The idea behind this theory is that if everyone is living hand to mouth and spending all their time hunting and gathering, you don't have the time and energy to waste on keeping slaves. But with the development of agriculture, society becomes more complex. There is enough extra food to have more specialization of labor. So you start getting more people who perform specific roles in society. That leads to more social stratification with some people in the top stratum and some in the bottom stratum. And the slaves in a society are always those on the bottom. If this theory is correct, then slavery began to be widespread about 11,000 years ago, and it remained common all over the world until the last 200 years. Here in America, slavery has been entangled with the issue of race. Is that true of slavery in most of human history? 
No, for the simple reason that long distance transportation was rare in the past. Most people in history never traveled very far from where they were born, especially if, you know, they were farmers. And so most communities have been all of the same race. That means that the people who got enslaved tended to look like the people that enslaved them. They might belong to a different group or speak a different language, and they may have become slaves after losing a battle in wartime, but they basically look like the people who enslaved them. So people in Europe enslaved other Europeans, people in the Middle East enslaved other Middle Easterners, people in Africa enslaved other Africans, people in Asia enslaved other Asians, and Native Americans enslaved other Native Americans. Then how did race and slavery become entangled in America? Because the age of exploration led to long-distance transportation between Europe, Africa, and the Americas. Europeans had long-distance transportation in the form of their sailing fleets, so they could take people who had been captured and enslaved in Africa, bring them to the New World and sell them there, uh, take goods from the New World back to Europe, and this regular travel between Europe, Africa, and the Americas, and then back to Europe, came to be known as the triangular trade. And the result was that many enslaved Africans were brought to the Americas, where they were used to produce goods like cotton, tobacco, and sugar that were then taken back to Europe. And it was the long-distance travel that enabled large numbers of people from one major racial group to end up as the slaves of people of another major racial group. This was something new in human history. As historian and economist Thomas Sowell writes, Anyone familiar with the history of slavery around the world knows that its origins go back thousands of years and that slaves and slave owners were very often of the same race. Blacks were not enslaved because they were black, but because they were available at the time. Whites enslaved other whites in Europe for centuries before the first black slave was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Only late in history were human beings even capable of crossing an ocean to get millions of other human beings of a different race. In the thousands of years before that, not only did Europeans enslave other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans, and the native peoples of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other native peoples of the Western Hemisphere. So widespread cross-racial enslavement was something new that began with the Age of Exploration. How did slavery become legal in the New World? There were no laws against it at the time. Uh, as we mentioned, there were Native American tribes that kept other Native Americans as slaves. And when the European powers arrived, like Spain, Portugal, and Britain, they began enslaving Native Americans too. Then the triangular trade started to bring enslaved Africans to the New World, and they virtually or they eventually became the majority of the slaves in the Americas. Slavery was legal under British law in all of the original 13 American colonies, and that remained the case until the Revolutionary War. And here we come to a historical irony, because the American revolutionaries were inspired by Enlightenment-era ideals about freedom and human equality. So there was a contradiction between their freedom and equality ideas and the fact slavery was legal in the colonies. 
This contradiction is illustrated by the American statesman Thomas Jefferson, who was himself a slave owner. And yet he regarded slavery as really problematic, as revealed in his original draft of the Declaration of Independence. For those who may not be aware, the Declaration of Independence is a document that was issued in 1776 by the Second U.S. Continental Congress. It's basically an open letter to the world explaining why the American colonies had decided that England is no longer the boss of us. And so it lists a bunch of charges against England's King George III, explaining why we needed to secede from the Kingdom of Great Britain. It starts this way. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. In explaining the causes for separation, the Declaration of Independence goes on to charge King George III with human rights violations. And in Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration, we find this charge. He, George III, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, that is, Africans, by captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his veto for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase the liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. So Jefferson charged King George with human rights violations against Africans by encouraging their enslavement and his determination to keep the slave markets going, and also by encouraging them to revolt and kill the colonists who were beginning to rebel. Now, one can easily say that Jefferson is being one-sided here, as there were certainly many colonists who had no problems with slavery. I mean, they were the ones buying the slaves, after all. But at least he does recognize this as a human rights violation. Unfortunately, this passage ended up being deleted from the original Declaration of Independence at the Second Continental Congress. According to the website blackpast.org, Decades later, Jefferson blamed the removal of the passage on delegates from South Carolina and Georgia and northern delegates who represented merchants who were at the time actively involved in the transatlantic slave trade. So the passage didn't make it into the Declaration of Independence. But the fact Jefferson wrote it at all is a sign that some people were having moral problems with slavery as a result of the Western ideals of freedom and equality. When did slavery start to become illegal in the United States? This is something that happened gradually, and it wasn't until after the Civil War that the process was complete. In 1780, during the Revolutionary War, the state of Pennsylvania issued what was known as the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780. 
This didn't end slavery in Pennsylvania all at once, but it did provide freedom for people born to enslaved parents. So slave status was no longer something that you inherited. Other states began adopting similar gradual approaches towards eliminating slavery. For example, in 1799, New York State also passed a law emancipating people born to enslaved parents after that date. But it wasn't until 1817 that they made the decision to emancipate everyone, and even then, they enacted a 10-year waiting period. So it wasn't until uh, 1827 that New York State's Emancipation Day arrived. Other states in the North were doing similar things, though slavery persisted in the southern states. At this period in American history, did the fact that someone was of African descent automatically mean that they were a slave? No. In fact, there were a growing number of free individuals, and there were two ways of gaining freedom. Uh, The first was emancipation, which is when a government steps in and frees someone from slavery. And the second was manumission which is when the slave's owner frees him. Between emancipation and manumission, there were a growing number of free black people. In the North, some of these were due to the emancipation efforts of the states, and in both North and South, some individuals had been manumitted by their owners. This happened especially during the Revolutionary War, when many slaves were freed by their owners in order to fight the British. If you were willing to fight for the freedom of the colonies, you could get your freedom too. And slaves continued to be freed after the war. For example, even though slavery was still legal in Virginia, the first American president, George Washington, decreed in his will that all his slaves, uh, all, all the ones he owned, were to be freed upon the death of his wife, Martha. And some free individuals, both North and South, had been born free because their parents were free. So being of African descent did not automatically make you a slave. Slavery rather than freedom, was the most common condition for people in America of African descent at the time. But there was a population of free blacks, as they were called, and this population was growing. Now, this is a delicate question, but did some of these individuals also own slaves? Yes. Uh, Unfortunately, the idea that there was anything wrong with slavery was still just catching on, and it was a minority view even in the Western world. There were abolitionists or people who wanted to abolish slavery. Many of them were of European descent, like the people who passed the emancipation laws in the northern states, and some were Southerners of European descent who also favored abolition. And needless to say, many slaves of African descent also very much wanted to see slavery abolished for obvious reasons. I mean, if you were enslaved, you'd be highly likely to want to see slavery abolished. But not everyone of African descent felt that way. In fact, the way that people in Africa became enslaved was frequently because of other Africans. Slavery was legal in Africa, just like it was here. And historically, One of the most common ways of becoming a slave was being defeated in wartime. If you went to war with another group and you lost, you might very well end up as a slave. So due to warfare between different groups in West Africa, many Africans were enslaved by other Africans who then sold them to European traders during their stops as part of the triangular trade. So slavery was an accepted practice in Africa, and it was an accepted practice in many of the American colonies, too. As a result, many free blacks also 
bought slaves of African descent, like people in cultures across the world have owned slaves from similar or even the same ethnic groups, which is a statement about the effects of original sin on all of us and how all of us need God's mercy. We've now got an overview of the situation, including the various types of people involved, including white and black people who favored abolishing slavery and white and black people who saw nothing wrong with slavery. Now, let's talk about Harriet Tubman. Who was she? She was born around 1822, though we're not sure about the exact years since we don't have birth records for a lot of people born into slavery. Also, her original name was not Harriet Tubman. It was Araminta Ross. And as a child, she was known as Minty. Uh, Her parents were both slaves. Her father was named Benjamin Ross, and he went by the name Ben. And her mother was named Harriet Green Ross, though she went by the name Rit, short for Harriet. So to avoid confusing Harriet with her mother, we'll be referring to her mother as Rit, and we'll be referring to the young Harriet herself as Harriet, even though she didn't yet have that name and was still called Minty, short for Araminta. Together, uh, Ben and Rit Ross had nine children, so Harriet had four brothers and four sisters. They lived on a plantation in Dorchester County, Maryland, and Ben was considered a skilled woodsman, so he managed the timber operations for his owner's property. He did so well at it that he was freed when he turned 45 in 1840, and he continued to work now as a freedman as the timber estimator and foreman for the family. Ben thus joined the growing free black population in Maryland, which was much larger than you might guess. By the outbreak of the Civil War, there were almost as many free blacks in in Maryland as there were slaves, between 80 and 90,000 of each. His wife, Ritt, served as a cook for the family in the main residence, or the big house, as it was called, and Ritt could be a very determined woman. After seeing three of her daughters sold to others, she took serious steps when there was a plan to sell a fourth child. Uh, This happened to be her youngest son, who was named Moses. Uh, When a trader from Georgia inquired about buying Moses, Ritt arranged for him to be kept hidden by other slaves and by freedmen in the community. They kept him hidden for a month, and I find it significant that Ritt kept her Moses hidden to keep him safe, not unlike the way the biblical Moses was kept hidden by his mother to protect him from Pharaoh's decree. Unfortunately, like the biblical Moses, they couldn't keep him hidden forever, and a particularly dramatic incident occurred when Ritt's owner and the man from Georgia came to the slave quarters to get him. Ritt forcefully told them, You are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. The owner cautiously backed away and the sale was canceled. And it's believed that this event and stories about it helped convince young Harriet of the possibility of successful resistance. So not only did it keep Moses from being sold in the moment, it also helped plant the seed for what Harriet would later do. Another particularly important event in Harriet's life occurred when she was about 13 years old, so around 1835. When she was in her early teens, Harriet was hired out to work as a field hand on a nearby farm. In her book, Bound for the Promised Land, author Kate Larson explains, Tubman had been hired out for her clothing and food to the worst man in the neighborhood. It was in the fall, a busy time on farms, and Tubman was assigned to break flax in the field. 
My hair had never been combed, and it stood out like a bushel basket, Tubman recalled. And when I'd get through eating, I'd wipe the grease off my fingers on my hair, and I expect that their hair saved my life. One night, Tubman and the plantation's cook went to a nearby store to purchase a few items for the house. A slave belonging to a local farmer named Barnett left his work without permission and was pursued by his overseer to the store. When the overseer found the young slave, he ordered Harriet to help him tie the slave down. Tubman refused, and the slave broke free and ran away. The overseer caught up a two-pound weight from the counter and threw it at the fugitive, but it fell short and struck Harriet a stunning blow on the head. Tubman later told Emma Telford that, I had a shoulder shawl of the mistresses over my head, and when I got to the store, I was ashamed to go in. The last thing she remembered was the overseer raising up his arm to throw an iron weight at one of the slaves, and that was the last I knew. She remembered vividly how the weight broke my skull and cut a piece of that shawl clean off and drove it into my head. They carried me to the house, all bleeding and fainting. I had no bed, no place to lie down at all, and they laid me on the seat of the weaving loom, and I stayed there all that day and next. So after the injury from the iron weight, she lay on the seat of the loom for two days before being able to get up and move. Receiving no medical attention, Tubman was returned to the field. I went to work again and there I worked with the blood and sweat rolling down my face till I couldn't see. Disabled and sick, her flesh all wasted away. She was returned to her owner, Edward Brodus. He attempted to sell her, but no buyer was interested in purchasing a wounded slave. They said they wouldn't give a sixpence for me, Tubman later recalled. She eventually recovered from the wound, or at least she sort of recovered, because even once the cut itself healed, it left a permanent scar, and that wasn't the only lingering effect. In fact, there seemed to have been two others. Apparently, as a result of being hit with the iron weight, she received a traumatic brain injury that produced an ongoing physiological effect specifically on her ability to remain focused and alert as she began to experience spells where she kind of shut down for a minute in the middle of whatever she was doing. Kate Larson explains. Thereafter, Tubman was often subject to unexpected episodes of lethargy, coming upon her in the midst of conversation or whatever she might be doing and throwing her into a deep slumber from which she will presently rouse herself and go on with her conversation or work. Tubman was unable to control the after-effects of this injury. Sometimes, it was almost impossible to rouse her. Her episodes of dropping off to sleep in the midst of conversation or while performing a task were frequent and unsettling. The Freedman's Record reported in 1865 that the injury still makes her very lethargic. She cannot remain quiet 15 minutes without appearing to fall asleep. It is not a refreshing slumber, but a heavy, weary condition which exhausts her. William Siebert interviewed Harriet Tubman in the mid-1890s and noted with surprise that her injury caused her at frequent intervals, say of half an hour or so, to lose consciousness for three or four minutes. She explained to me that her head would drop and she would become silent, but I was not to become alarmed, and she would arouse and continue her talk without losing the thread of her conversation. You can imagine how frustrating and infuriating it would be to be going about your daily business, but constantly and unexpectedly falling asleep for a few minutes every half hour and not even feeling rested afterwards. When we get to the reason perspective, we'll have more to say about what may have been going on medically as a result of the injury. You said the injury had a second long-term effect. What was that? 
This one is more conjectural because Harriet herself did not seem to attribute it to the injury. In fact, she said some of this she got from her father. But biographers have still suggested that it was a result of the head injury, and there's some reason to think that the injury contributed to it. But basically, Harriet began having a large number of mystical and paranormal experiences. Kate Larson explains, The head injury also coincided with an explosion of religious enthusiasm and vivid imagery in the young slave woman. Tubman broke out, often unexpectedly, into loud and excited religious praising. If this injury caused her great suffering, it also marked the beginning of a lifetime of potent dreams and visions that she claimed foretold the future. Some of her dreams eventually took on an important role in Tubman's life, influencing not only her own course of action, but also the way other people viewed her. Sounds of music, rushing water, screaming, and loud noises would overcome her without notice. Her dreams, visions, and hallucinations often intruded amid daily work and activities. We've been carting manure all day, Tubman once explained to an interviewer, and the other girl and I was going home on the sides of the cart, and another boy was driving, when suddenly I heard such music as filled all the air. Soon she began to experience a powerful religious vision, which she described in language which sounded like the old prophets in its grand flow. Persistent shaking by her fellow slaves brought her back to reality, though she protested that she hadn't been asleep at all. So Harriet began to experience religious visions and prophetic dreams, which she attributed to God. She also began to have out-of-body experiences. Tubman used to dream of flying over fields and towns and rivers and mountains, looking down upon them like a bird, as early biographer Sarah Bradford put it. When these turns of solemnity came upon Harriet, she imagines that her spirit leaves her body and visits other scenes and places, not only in this world, but in the world of spirits. And her ideas of these scenes show, to say the least of it, a vividness of imagination seldom equaled in the soaring of the most cultivated minds. Yet Harriet didn't attribute or didn't simply attribute these experiences to her head injury. Instead, she claimed she had inherited this ability from her father, who could always predict the weather, and that he foretold the Mexican-American War of the 1840s. So there was a history of paranormal experiences in her family, and her father also apparently reported out-of-body experiences and precognitive experiences. Needless to say, we'll have more to say about all this when we get to the faith and reason perspectives. The head injury occurred when Harriet was in her early teens. What happened as she grew up? In 1844, so when she was around 22 years old, she married a man named John Tubman, and he was a free black, and marriages between free and slave were not uncommon, since about half the African-American population of Maryland was free. Her marriage to John is how Araminta Ross became Araminta Tubman, and soon afterwards, she started going by her mother's name, Harriet, though we're not sure why. In any event, that's how Araminta Ross became Harriet Tubman. How did Harriet end up obtaining her freedom? The events leading to it began in the late 1840s. At this time, Harriet had been hiring herself out to different people, and this was a common arrangement. Some slaves were allowed to find temporary employers and then give the money they earned back to their legal owner. Harriet's legal owner was Edward Broadus, and she was returning to him about 50 or $60 a year. So that's about 1700 to $2,000 after the inflation the government has caused. But Broadus had a lot of debts, 
and needed to raise cash. So when Harriet became ill in the winter of 1848 and 1849, and she couldn't work very much, he started looking to sell her to help fix uh, his cash flow problems. This caused Harriet a lot of anxiety. Kate Larson explains. Tubman later recalled that from Christmas till March, I worked as I could and I prayed through all the long nights. I groaned and prayed for old master. Oh, Lord, convert master. Oh, Lord, change that man's heart. Harriet's prayers would be answered, but not in the way she could ever have imagined. Harriet's prayers took on a more urgent tone as the winter of 1849 wore on and the first signs of spring began to appear on the eastern shore. Still recovering from poor health and overwork, Tubman prayed relentlessly, pleading with God to forgive her sins and deliver her from this heartless master. It appears like I prayed all the time, she said, about my work everywhere. I prayed and I groaned to the Lord. When I went to the horse trough to wash my face, I took up the water in my hand and I said, Oh Lord, wash me, make me clean. Then I take up something to wipe my face and I say, Oh Lord, wipe away all my sin. When I took the broom and began to sweep, I groaned, Oh Lord, whatsoever sin there be in my heart, sweep it out, Lord, clear and clean. More fearful than ever, her prayers took on a more urgent tone with each passing day. By March 1849, she imagined with a keen sense of foreboding that she was about to be sold. I prayed all night long for Master, till the first of March, and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. Then we heard that some of us was going to be sold to go with the chain gang down to the cotton and rice fields, and they said I was going and my brothers and sisters. Then I changed my prayer. First of March, I began to pray, Oh Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way. Little did Harriet know when she prayed for Brodus's death that he lay dying in Bucktown. On March 7, 1849, Edward Brodus died at the age of 47. Harriet was stunned. Despite her relief, she still felt a sense of responsibility that her prayers had indeed been answered, though not entirely as she had expected. Next thing I heard, old master was dead, and he died just as he lived. Oh, then it appeared like I'd give all the world full of gold, if I had it, to bring that poor soul back. But I couldn't pray for him no longer. And Harriet's prayers, both of them, are understandable. Help him repent or take him out of the way prayers can be justified. And Harriet had them in the right order, praying first that God would help her master repent and then switching to take him out of the way when it became clear that wasn't likely to happen. Also understandable is her reaction after Broadus died after she prayed for his death. She felt responsible, and that's a terrible burden to have. Normal, well-adjusted people suffer terribly when they feel responsible for someone's death. Even in cases of justifiable homicide, like killing someone in self-defense, normal, emotionally healthy people feel highly traumatized afterwards. And Harriet's regret shows that she had normal, healthy instincts, even though she was not literally responsible for Broadus's death. Even if her prayers occasioned it, it was ultimately God's decision, not hers. We'll have more to say about that when we get to the faith perspective. What happened to Harriet after Broadus died? It was a very chaotic situation, and a series of legal battles broke out. It turned out that Harriet's owner, Edward Broadus, had been involved in some shady dealings, including selling Harriet's siblings out of, out of state, which was illegal in these circumstances. Further, it appeared that the family had illegally ignored the provisions of a previous will 
that would have resulted in freedom for Harriet's mother, Rit, and all her children. Yet the family kept them enslaved. And with trying to pay off all the debts, Edward's widow, Eliza, was trying to sell off slaves in order to raise money. So Harriet's family was terrified of being broken up. And it was at this moment that Harriet decided to take her fate into her own hands. On September 17, 1849, she and two of her brothers, Henry and Ben, made a break for freedom. And what did Harriet's free husband, John Tubman, think of this? Actually, he was opposed to the move, but Harriet and her brothers went anyway. It appears that at the time, they weren't under the direct supervision of Eliza Broadus, who, but she'd hired them out. And the reason that historians think that is because she didn't immediately realize that they were gone. It took a couple of weeks for her to publish a reward notice in the newspaper. When the notice did appear, it read, $300 reward. Ran away from the subscriber on Monday the 17th last. Three Negroes named as follows. Harry, that is Henry, aged about 19 years, has on one side of his neck a win, that is a cyst, just under the ear. He is of a dark chestnut color, about 5 feet 8 or 9 inches height. Ben, aged about 25 years, he is very quick to speak when spoken to. He is of a chestnut color, about 6 feet high. Minty, aged about 27 years, is of a chestnut color, fine-looking, and about 5 feet high. $100 reward will be given for each of the above named Negroes if taken out of the state and $50 each if taken in the state. They must be lodged in Baltimore, Easton, or Cambridge Jail in Maryland. Eliza Ann Brodus. That $300 reward would be worth about $11,000 today, which is a substantial sum for Mrs. Broadus to offer given her money troubles. But that was the kind of sum that slave owners needed to offer, and that kind of money did motivate people known as slave hunters or slave catchers. Essentially, they were bounty hunters who would go out and try to catch runaway slaves for which they would then receive the bounty or reward. Were Harriet and her brothers successful in getting away? Not on this attempt. Harriet's brothers were very afraid of getting caught. Uh, you see, if you were a runaway slave who got caught, you not only faced a very severe beating, you likely would be sold to a buyer in the deep south to make it harder for you to run away again. The idea was that being deeper in slaveholding territory, it would discourage you from running, from running away again, as you'd have much farther to go to get to freedom and being sold so far away would break up your family for sure. Harriet's brother Ben was a new father, and he very much did not want to be sold south, away from his wife and child. Notice that even at this early date, there are hints that the three escaped as part of an initial plan to get the rest of the family out and keep it together. In any event, the brothers reasoned that if they went back and turned themselves in, they could arrange to be sold to someone nearby, still in Maryland and still near the rest of the family. And despite Harriet's protests, they convinced her to come back with them. However, shortly after they returned, Harriet once more struck out on her own and escaped again. With her brothers out of the picture, did she have to make her way to freedom alone? 
No, because she was able to rely on the Underground Railroad. Uh, The Underground Railroad was not a literal railroad, but it was called one because it moved people from one place to another. It also wasn't literally underground, but it was called that because it was an illegal clandestine operation. Basically, the Underground Railroad was an informal network of people before the Civil War who helped slaves escape to freedom. The Underground Railroad included people in southern and northern states. It included white abolitionists, many of whom opposed slavery on religious grounds. It also included free blacks, and it included other slaves who could provide covert assistance for runaways who were passing through the area. Kate Larson explains, Using her strength and her craft, which was great, Tubman traveled by night using the North Star and instructions from white and black helpers to find her way to freedom in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Harriet knew the North Star, Helen Tatlock later told Conrad. That was one thing she insisted that she was always sure of. Harriet was helped first by a white woman, who apparently knew her and willingly assisted Tubman on her way. Helen Tatlock, a friend of Tubman's later in her life, remembered Tubman telling her that she confided her plans to a white woman who lived in the area. Tatlock thought the woman was a Quaker because it was Quakers who then gave escaping slaves the most aid. Tubman gave this unidentified woman a coveted bed quilt. She could not give it to another slave, as that person would soon come under suspicion for knowing of Tubman's plans to run away. This white woman gave Tubman two names and directed her to the first person on the way, who would then help her on to the second. So as you made your way to freedom, you would be given the name of one contact, who would then give you the name of your next contact and directions for how to get there. You'd often be traveling by night, on foot, in the woods or swamps in order to avoid the slave catchers. And if everything went well, you'd eventually make your way to the border of a free state, a state where slavery was illegal, and then cross into it. Or you'd get out of the United States altogether. Depending on where you started your journey, the nearest free location might be Mexico or one of the free Caribbean islands. Unfortunately, in 1850, Congress passed a strengthened fugitive slave law that required northern officials to assist slave catchers. And so the Underground Railroad would help you make your way to Canada, where you'd be beyond the reach of U.S. law. But that was the year after Harriet escaped, so she didn't have to deal with that. She only needed to go 90 miles to get to the Pennsylvania line, which she did. And then she crossed it into freedom. When I found I had crossed that line, Tubman later recalled, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. And Harriet didn't want to keep the gift of freedom to herself, so she quickly became a conductor on the Underground Railroad. On a train, the conductor is the person who is responsible for the passengers and who accompanies them on their journey from one place to another. Conductors on the Underground Railroad were guides who went into slave territory, helped you escape, and then accompanied you on your way to freedom. Harriet became a conductor, and during the 1850s, she made around 13 trips back to Maryland to help get people to freedom. All told, she accompanied and conducted about 70 people to freedom, and she also gave instructions to 50 or 60 more who ended up making their way to freedom. As part of her activities, she also became involved with prominent abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass. 
Douglas also was born into slavery in Maryland, but he escaped and became a prominent leader and literary figure. A number of years ago, I read one of his autobiographies, which is called A Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. It's extremely insightful, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. He later wrote two more biographies. We're not 100% sure, but the evidence we have suggests that Harriet and a group of escaped slaves stayed at his house as one of the Underground Railroad stops on their way to Canada. In his third autobiography, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, he wrote about how he also worked for the Underground Railroad. He was both a conductor and a station master, which meant that he used his home as a station house, another railroad term, in this case signifying a house where you would be hidden as a runaway slave on your way to freedom. You thus might stay in Douglas's home in Rochester, New York, on your way to Canada. Douglas wrote, One important branch of my anti-slavery work in Rochester was as station master and conductor of the Underground Railroad passing through this goodly city. Secrecy and concealment were necessary conditions to the successful operation of this railroad, and hence its prefix, Underground. My agency was all the more exciting and interesting because not altogether free from danger. I could take no step in it without exposing myself to fine and imprisonment, for these were the penalties imposed by the fugitive slave law for feeding, harboring, or otherwise assisting a slave to escape from his master. But in face of this fact, I can say I never did more congenial, attractive, fascinating, and satisfactory work. True, as a means of destroying slavery, it was like an attempt to bail out the ocean with a teaspoon, but the thought that there was one less slave and one more free man brought to my heart unspeakable joy. On one occasion, I had eleven fugitives at the same time under my roof, and it was necessary for them to remain with me until I could collect sufficient money to get them onto Canada. It was the largest number I ever had at any one time, and I had some difficulty in providing so many with food and shelter. And the evidence suggests that this group of 11 was one of the groups that Harriet helped guide from Maryland to Canada. You mentioned earlier that there were indications Harriet and her brothers were hoping to help other family members escape after they made their own way to freedom. Was Harriet ever able to do this? Yes. In fact, she was able to liberate many of her family members. For example, in 1854, she got word that Eliza Broadus was planning to sell three of her brothers, uh, Robert, Ben and Henry, over the Christmas holiday. And she arrived just in time on Saturday, December 24th, or Christmas Eve. The auction was scheduled for two days later on Christmas Monday. Christmas was a good time for the escape as slaves were allowed to celebrate the holiday, so they weren't being watched as closely. This was a particularly heart-wrenching event for multiple reasons. Uh, One of them was that Harriet was going onto the plantation where her parents lived, and Harriet Harriet hadn't seen her parents, Ben and Rit, in five years. She was sure that if her mother saw her, she'd be so excited that she'd be likely to make so much of a commotion that it would draw attention and possibly get them caught. So through intermediaries, Harriet let her father, Ben, know what was going on, and they didn't let Rit know. Ben was a very religious man, and so he took an unusual step at this point. He knew that he would be asked about the escapees afterwards, and so he decided to use a mental reservation with the slave catchers later on. Kate Larson explains, 
Ben gathered some food for the hungry and weary runaways and brought it to the fodder house. Using every caution, he passed food to them, taking care not to see his children. Ben knew that he would be asked if he had seen them when the slave catchers came looking, and he cleverly decided he could tell them that he truly had not seen them. It was very hard for Ben, though. He had not seen his daughter Harriet since she'd run away, and now she was there with her brothers, ready to run north, leaving him and Rit behind. He checked on the group several times on Christmas Day, and by nightfall they were rested, well-fed, and ready to start their journey. Harriet and her brothers took a moment to peer through the cabin window. There, Rit sat by her fire with a pipe in her mouth, her head on her hand, rocking back and forth as she did when she was in trouble, and wondering what new evil had come to her children. Sadly, they turned their faces north, not knowing if they would ever see their dear mother again. Ben tied a handkerchief tight over his eyes, and two of his sons taking him by each arm, he accompanied them some miles upon the journey. They then bade him farewell and left him standing blindfolded in the middle of the road. When he could no longer hear their footsteps, he took off the handkerchief and turned back. Later, though, Harriet came back and brought her parents north as well. At this time, both of them were free, but they still lived in Maryland. Ben had been freed when he turned 45, and in 1855, Ben purchased Ritz Freedom by paying Eliza Broadus $20, or $750 today. The price was so low because Ritt was elderly at this point. But in 1857, Harriet got word that her father was in danger of being arrested because he'd helped eight runaway slaves as part of the Underground Railroad. So Harriet came back to Maryland and helped her elderly parents come north. She ended up conducting them all the way to St. Catharines, Ontario, where there was a community of former slaves, including her brothers and many other members of her family. How effective was Harriet as a conductor on the Underground Railroad? Extremely effective. Uh, we may do a future episode on the Underground Railroad itself in which we talk more about her methods, but they were really smart and highly effective. For a start, she planned her expeditions in the wintertime when the nights were long. That would give you more time to travel at night. And it was also cold, so people would be in their houses. Between the cold and the darkness, there would be less chance of anyone seeing you, making the slave catchers work harder. Also, uh, she would have departures scheduled for Saturday nights because the newspapers wouldn't be able to print notices that you would run away until Monday. So you'd have all of Sunday and most of Monday before people in the community would learn that you were missing. And you'd have all that time to get out of the area. She also had strict rules for the passengers she was conducting. One of them was you had to show up on time at the rendezvous point. Harriet would not endanger the group she was conducting by having them wait for someone who was late. If they did that, they stood a much higher chance of getting caught. So Harriet made the trains run on time, which was a safety feature to you as one of her passengers. She also had a rule that once you started, nobody was allowed to turn back. If a person went back, they would be beaten and they could give away the whole group. So to protect the whole group, you had to keep going once you started. And she would ruthlessly enforce this rule. Uh, she carried a revolver for protection against slave catchers and their dogs, but she would turn it on passengers if they tried to turn back. 
She later recounted how one man tried to go back to the plantation she just helped him escape from. So she pointed the gun at his head and said, You go on or die. Seven days later, she got him and the rest of the group into Canada. And as she got people across the border, she'd exclaim, Glory to God and Jesus, too. One more soul is safe. After the Civil War, when her career as a conductor was over, she told an audience, I was conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years, and I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. So, yes, she was an extremely effective conductor, and as a result, people started calling her Moses after the same biblical Moses who led his people out of slavery. And she did all this in spite of the handicap she had as a result of the head injury that she suffered in her early teens, like her sleeping or fainting spells, which she had regularly. And to do all that with that kind of a handicap is quite an accomplishment. Is Harriet Tubman known for things besides her work on the Underground Railroad? Yes. Around 1858, she began having a recurring prophetic dream. She thought she was in a wilderness sort of place, all full of rocks and bushes, when she saw a serpent raise its head among the rocks. And as it did so, it became the head of an old man with a long white beard gazing at her, wishful-like, just as if he was going to speak to me. And then two other heads rose up beside him, younger than he. And as she stood looking at them, and wondering what they could want with her, a great crowd of men rushed in and struck down the younger heads. And then the head of the old man, still looking at her, so wishful. This dream she had again and again, and could not interpret it. But then she was introduced to the man whose head she had seen in the dream, and it turned out to be the abolitionist John Brown. He was planning to start a slave rebellion in hopes of creating a new state for the freed slaves, and the first stage of his plan was conducting a raid on Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Brown immediately recognized Harriet was a very intelligent and capable woman, and he asked her to help with planning the raid as well as recruiting people to his cause, which she did. Brown referred to her as General Tubman, though she wasn't actually present when the raid itself took place on October 16, 1859. This raid was one of the inciting events for the Civil War, and just like Harriet's dream predicted, it didn't go well for John Brown. In the dream, she saw the heads of Brown and his associates being struck down, and when the raid occurred, it went badly and Brown was captured. He was then tried for treason, murder, and inciting a slave rebellion, and he was hung on December 2, 1859, but he continued to inspire abolitionists after his execution. In fact, one of the most popular northern songs in the Civil War was known as John Brown's Body. Yes, somebody took an old tune and rewrote the lyrics so that it became John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. And if you recognize that tune, it's because the lyrics were later rewritten again to become the Battle Hymn of the Republic which includes the lyrics, In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. His truth is marching on. 
So Harriet had an indirect role in John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And during the Civil War, she took on multiple roles serving the Union Army. She alternately served as a cook, a laundress, a nurse, a guide, a scout, and a spy. So she really had the whole Tinker Tailor Soldier spy thing going. And on July 1st, 1863, she became the first woman to plan and execute an armed raid during the Civil War. It was an expedition from Port Royal, South Carolina. It's known as the Combahee River Raid, and it ended up freeing more than 750 slaves. So what did she do after the war? She did a lot, and we won't have time to cover it all, but you can read the books uh, and further resources that we'll have links to. One thing she did after the war was get married again, this time to a former soldier named uh, Nelson Charles Davis, who had served in the 8th United States Colored Infantry Regiment, and together they adopted a baby girl named Gertie. Although Harriet had money problems, she engaged in humanitarian work. One of the things she did was found an elder care facility known as the Harriet Tubman Home for the Ages. She also was a suffragette, meaning she was an activist in favor of giving women the right to vote, and she worked alongside other famous suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony. And as she continued to have problems with her childhood head injury, she underwent brain surgery in the late 1890s at Boston, Massachusetts General Hospital, near where you lived, Dom. That's right. She, she did not receive anesthesia during the surgery. She had seen soldiers in the Civil War biting on bullets while their limbs were amputated. And so despite the fact she was in her late 70s, she also literally bit the bullet during the procedure. And it helped. As she later said... I just lay down like a lamb before the slaughter, and he sawed open my skull and raised it up, and now it feels more comfortable. So, Harriet Tubman, tough as nails right to the end. Only, it wasn't the end yet. She'd live another 20 years or so, and she finally went to her reward in March of 1913, aged 90 or 91. Wow, what an amazing life. We're going to get to uh, our faith and reason perspectives in a moment. But first, I want to take a second to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Peter V, Ambrose B, Joshua B, Levi P, and Jonathan H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. So, Jimmy, what can we say about today's story from the reason perspective? Well, let's start with slavery and racism. Well, obviously, both of them are horrible. Slavery is evil and racism is evil. And thank God we no longer have slavery in America and that it's been ended in most of the rest of the world. And we should be aware of why it ended after having been so common for so many thousands of years, because some people try to paint America and the West in general as if they were uniquely evil in this regard. But 
that doesn't correspond to the facts of history. As Thomas Sowell points out, Strange as it seems to us today, a hundred years ago, only Western civilization saw anything wrong with slavery. And 200 years ago, only a minority in the West thought it was wrong. Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others not only maintained slavery long after it was abolished throughout the Western Hemisphere, they resisted all attempts of the West to stamp out slavery in their lands during the age of imperialism. Only the fact that the West had greater firepower and more economic and political clout enabled them to impose the abolition of slavery as they imposed other Western ideas on the non-Western world. Those who talk about slavery as if it were just the enslavement of blacks by whites ignore not only how widespread this institution was and how far back in history it went, they also ignore how recently slavery continued to exist outside of Western civilization. While slavery was destroyed in the West during the 19th century, the struggle to end slavery elsewhere continued well into the 20th century, and pockets of slavery still exist to this moment in Africa. While the Western world was just as guilty as other civilizations when it came to enslaving people for thousands of years, it was unique only in finally deciding that the whole institution was immoral and should be ended. So rather than being uniquely world villains in this regard, America and the West actually exported the idea that slavery needs to be banned across the world. When it comes to racism, it is intrinsically evil. All of us are God's children, and we need to treat each other as brothers and sisters. God doesn't care about your skin color any more than he cares about your hair color or your eye color. Uh, we shouldn't care about such cosmetic matters any more than God does. What counts isn't what you look like. It's what's in your heart. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor with neighbor understood as every single one of your fellow human beings? Those are the two great commandments on which everything else depends. Consequently, I'm a big fan of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, in which he said, Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. 
And amen to that. Nobody should be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And thank God that so much of Dr. King's dream has been realized. Things have changed enormously since he gave the speech in 1963 when Jim Crow laws were legally enforcing racial segregation in many places. Enormous progress has been made since then towards racial reconciliation. America has even elected a black president and currently has a black vice president. And we need to make more progress yet. So we need to continue to foster racial reconciliation and harmony, despite the efforts being made by some to drive wedges between people today. Let's look at some of the mysteries connected with Harriet Tubman herself. What about that head injury she received and how it made her have recurring spells where she just shut down for a few minutes? What would modern medicine say about that? One proposal is made by biographer Kate Larson. Taken together, the range of symptoms and behaviors that followed Tubman's terrible head injury strongly point to the likelihood that she suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy, or TLE. Her seizures or sleeping spells and visions are typical of TLE, brought on by severe head injuries. Furthermore, the bright lights, colorful auras, disembodied voices, states of tremendous anxiety and fear, alternating with exceptional hyperactivity and fearlessness, and dreamlike trances while appearing to be conscious, followed by the episodes of overwhelming and crippling fatigue that Tubman experienced, are classic symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy. TLE visions often have religious overtones, a phenomenon Tubman experienced throughout her life. The temporal lobe of the brain is down low and towards the back. It's not the complete back of the brain, that's the occipital lobe, but it's kind of where your ears are, as well as a little behind the ears. Epilepsy, of course, is a condition in which there's abnormal electrical activity in the brain. It's famous for causing seizures, epileptic seizures, though not all forms of epilepsy do this. Temporal lobe epilepsy is thus abnormal electrical activity in the temporal lobe. Larson continues, Harriet's frequent periods of semi-consciousness with an inability to speak, hyper-religiosity, paranormal experiences, and recurrent nightmares appear to have become integrated into the young woman's personality, a phenomenon not unknown in TLE. Unlike other forms of epilepsy, temporal lobe seizures do not include convulsions. In fact, the temporal lobes are associated with the sensory regions of the brain, which include smell, taste, vision, and hearing, memory, and emotions. And therefore, the seizures most often affect these sensory activities. Tubman's religiosity was unquestionably rooted in powerful Methodist evangelical teachings and was also a mystical and deeply personal spiritual experience. But it may have been enhanced by the epiphany-like manifestations of TLE seizures. Some of her dreams reflect the out-of-body encounters reported by some TLE patients. When I encountered this possible diagnosis for Harriet, the very first thing I did was Google causes of temporal lobe epilepsy. And sure enough, right at the top of the list was severe traumatic brain injury. So the two-pound iron weight that gave her the head injury could indeed have caused her to have TLE. And its symptoms are consistent with what she later experienced, including the periods where she'd simply shut down and appear to sleep for a few minutes. TLE often does not cause convulsions, but it can cause people to suddenly become unresponsive or lose consciousness. When that happens, it usually only lasts for one to two minutes, 
and they may feel tired for 15 minutes afterwards, which may account for why Harriet and others said these spells did not seem to be restful sleeps. So I think the diagnosis of trauma-induced temporal lobe epilepsy sounds very credible. What about her visions, premonitions, and out-of-body experiences? Could those be a product of TLE? They could, and they may well have been, but we need to be careful here. First, she reported that her father also had out-of-body experiences and precognitive experiences, like predicting the Mexican-American War. So there was a history of paranormal experiences in the family, and she may have inherited that. Though the temporal lobe epilepsy may have uh, made her have such experiences even more frequently than she would have otherwise had. Um, Second, even if the epilepsy was playing a causal role in her paranormal experiences, that didn't mean that they weren't genuine or genuinely paranormal. It's true that TLE is associated with psychic experiences such as precognition and out-of-body experiences. Temporal lobe epileptiform activity has also been associated with recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis or poltergeist activity, which we discussed in episode 195. So regardless of whether the paranormal experiences Harriet had were caused by epilepsy or not, we'd still have to take them seriously and see whether they genuinely involved psychic functioning. It could be that the brain injury affected her neurology in a way that made her more psychic than she otherwise would have been. So what does the evidence suggest in this case? I'm afraid I don't have a good list of her paranormal experiences that I can examine, but I would note that her recurrent precognitive dream about John Brown was dead on the money. She did meet John Brown, who looked like the head in her vision, and he did want something from her to help with his cause. And she uh, reported that the head in her dream looked at her wishful-like, just as if he were going to speak to me. Like the head in her vision, he did have associates, in this case, who were younger than he was, just like in the dream. Uh, He was trying to start a slave rebellion, and slave owners might well have regarded him as what you see in the dream, a snake rising up from the ground to surprise you. Also in the dream, he and his associates were struck down by a crowd of men, and John Brown's rebellion failed, and he was hung from the gallows. Finally, I'd note another thing that could be evidence for psychic functioning on her part, assuming you believe in psychic functioning. A common theory in parapsychology is known as the super psi hypothesis. Basically, it's the idea that we all use subconscious low-level psychic functioning to help us navigate our lives all the time. And highly successful people may have more subconscious psychic functioning than others, allowing them to navigate their environment better and be more successful. Uh, We talked about that theory in episode 198 uh, in one of my interviews with parapsychologist Dr. Edwin May. So if you think psychic functioning is possible, and if the super psi hypothesis is true, maybe Harriet was so successful as a conductor because she had enhanced psychic functioning, allowing her to subconsciously detect dangerous situations when she was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and then avoid those situations. Perhaps that's part of why, unlike other conductors, she never had a mission that fell apart and she never lost a passenger. Switching to the faith perspective, what about the religious side of this? Could her highly religious behavior be due to temporal lobe epilepsy? I don't know about this one. Uh, In the first place, I really hesitate to diagnose anybody as 
hyper religious and then blame it on a physical condition. I don't know that Harriet should be considered hyper religious at all, as opposed to just a, a devout Christian woman. It's more than 100 years since she died, and it's really hard to diagnose something like this since we can't interview her. Even if it turned out that the epilepsy did enhance her religious feelings, which were already there before the accident, that doesn't take away from her having genuine faith and devotion to God. Her faith and devotion were still real, even if her level of feelings had been heightened as a result of the accident. What about her paranormal experiences like precognitive dreams and out-of-body experiences? Harriet didn't attribute these to psychic functioning, but to God. No, but the two options are not mutually exclusive. To paraphrase St. Thomas Aquinas, grace perfects nature. So if psychic functioning exists, it's because God would have built it into human nature, as we discussed in episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. And perhaps the head injury enhanced Harriet's abilities in that regard, and God then used them to help liberate people from slavery. These things aren't in competition. I've talked on the show before about how I regularly have what could be regarded as precognitive experiences. I'll often find myself researching or thinking about an obscure subject, and then within 48 hours, I'm asked about it professionally as an apologist. It happens often enough that I've thought for years that maybe God is giving me a nudge to learn about something immediately before I need that knowledge. And as I've learned more about parapsychology, I've come to recognize that it could be God is using precognition to help me become aware of something I'll need to know about in order to help someone. So these options aren't mutually exclusive. It could be that God was using Harriet's ability, even her, even the ones resulting from her brain injury, to help people get away. One of the things Harriet worried about was the fact that she had prayed for her master to die. And when he did, she regretted it because she could no longer pray for him. Is that true? No, it would have helped Harriet if she realized that she could continue to pray for his soul even after his death. As Pope Benedict XVI stated, God is outside of earthly time, and so it's never too late to pray for anyone. You can listen to episode 208 on time travel prayer for more information on that. So even once he died, Harriet could pray for the soul of her owner, either that he would be swiftly purified on his way to heaven, or that before he died, he repented of his sins and died in God's grace. Is there anything else we should say from the faith perspective? One thing I'd like to call listeners' attention to is the book of Philemon. Because of when the Bible was written, slavery was an accepted social institution, and it had been for thousands of years. People weren't about to give it up, just like the Pope today can't snap his fingers and make nations all over the world ban abortion. But the Bible does recognize slavery as a natural evil. It's a bad thing to be a slave. And the Bible contains provisions to help make the situation of slaves easier. Thus, the Old Testament contains passages protecting the rights of slaves. So, for example, if a master uh, beats a slave so that he's permanently injured, even just having a tooth knocked out, he has to let the slave go free on account of the tooth. Uh, that's in uh, Exodus twenty-one twenty-seven. if you want to look it up. And in the New Testament, Paul reassures slaves of their status in God's eyes. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 21 and 22, he writes, 
Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. So Paul assures uh, slaves and gives a hint to masters that slaves and masters are the same in God's eyes. Uh, God God doesn't favor either over the other. You're, we're all equal to God. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul is giving a list of people who are in grave sin, and among them he lists andropodistes, which is Greek for man-stealers. It's commonly understood uh, that this is a reference to people who kidnap others and sell them into slavery, or to slave traders more generally. But the place I want to call listeners' attention to, so Paul considers that a grave sin, But the place I want to call listeners' attention to specifically is the book of Philemon. It's the shortest book in the New Testament, being only 25 verses long, or at least it's, I should say, the shortest of all of Paul's epistles. And it's a letter Paul wrote to a man named Philemon, who was one of Paul's converts to Christ. Paul is writing Philemon about his runaway slave, who was named Onesimus. Onesimus had fled from Philemon and gone to Rome, where he met Paul and became a Christian. But Onesimus's status as a runaway slave was precarious. So Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon to address the situation. But he makes an impassioned plea on Onesimus's behalf, writing, Although I have great confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, instead I appeal to you because of love, since I am such a one as Paul, now an old man and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you concerning my child, whom I became the father of during my imprisonment, Onesimus. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful to you and to me, whom I have sent back to you himself, that is, my heart, whom I wanted to keep with me, in order that he might serve me on behalf of you during my imprisonment for the gospel. But apart from your consent, I wanted to do nothing, in order that your good deed might be not as according to necessity, but according to your own free will. For perhaps because of this, he was separated from you for a time, in order that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If, therefore, you consider me a partner, receive him as you would me. But if in anything he has caused you loss or owes you anything, charge this to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will pay it back, lest I mention to you that you owe me even your very self besides. Yes, brother, I ought to have some benefit of you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you because I know that you will do even beyond what I say. Notice how Paul is really laying it on. He reminds Philemon that he, Paul, is an old man, that he's suffering in prison for the sake of Jesus, how Onesimus is now his spiritual son, and he says is as dear to him as his own heart, and how Philemon owes Paul his own soul, since Paul was the one who brought him to Jesus. So when he gets there, don't hold his runaway status against him. Paul says he will personally pay anything Onesimus owes. He says, receive him as you would receive me. So Philemon should treat Onesimus just like he would treat Paul. Uh, 
He says not to regard him as a slave anymore, but as a brother in Christ. And he says he wants Philemon to send Onesimus back to him. And that he is confident that Philemon will do even more than what he says. As a result, many scholars have concluded that what Paul is doing in this letter is asking Philemon to manumit Onesimus, to give him his freedom. Don't think of him as a slave anymore, but as a brother. Send him back. Do even more than I'm asking. That can certainly sound like Paul is trying to arrange Onesimus' freedom. Whether or not that understanding is correct, this inspired book of the Bible is all about compassion for a runaway slave. And because it's inspired, it has God as its ultimate author. So think about that. An entire book of the Bible about God's compassion for runaway slaves. And that is a good note to end on. So, Jimmy, what is your bottom line here? Harriet Tubman was an amazing woman. Uh, She was born not just in poverty, but in slavery. She was brutally treated and received a head injury that gave her a disability for the rest of her life. And despite all that, she not only managed to free herself, but numerous others, including members of her own family. She was one of the most successful conductors on the Underground Railroad. And after the war, she continued to do humanitarian work, including founding an old folks home and becoming an activist for women to have the right to vote. She was a devoutly Christian woman who believed that God was guiding her on her mission. And who knows, he may have been using psychic functioning as part of helping her help herself and others. In any event, her legacy is so great that there are even discussions of putting her on the American $20 bill. One of the proposed designs I don't find particularly impressive. It's just a standard staid portrait of her, like what you see on other dollar bills. But there are other unofficial and better designs. One of them has her holding her revolver as well as a lantern to help guide you on your way to freedom. But my favorite, which I think captures her spirit the best and is the coolest of the designs, has her holding up her revolver in one hand while reaching out to you dramatically with the other hand. It visually communicates the message, come with me, take my hand, I'll protect you, let's go. And I think that is the best of all the designs. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener and the viewer? We'll have a link to uh, Kate Larson's book, Bound for the Promised Land, which is a modern uh, biography of Harriet Tubman. Also, we'll have a book called Hauntings of the Underground Railroad about more uh, paranormal experiences with the Underground Railroad. We'll have Sarah Bradford's book, uh, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and Sarah Bradford's other book, Harriet Tubman, The Moses of Her People. We'll also have the Thomas Sowell Reader, the complete autobiographies of Frederick Douglass, as well as links to web pages on information about Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, the Emperor Claudius's slave Narcissus, who became such a wealthy and influential man, uh, info on Frederick Douglass, John Brown, the song John Brown's Body, uh, Thomas Sowell, Slavery in the 21st Century, the Triangular Trade, and information about the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780 in Pennsylvania, the end of slavery in New York, Uh, the difference between emancipation and manumission, also the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson's original indictment against slavery, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, as well as a transcript, 
information on temporal lobe epilepsy and an article on psychic seizures and their relevance to psychosis in temporal epilepsy, which is a journal article, and finally, the super psi hypothesis. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, a couple of uh, headlines related to Harriet Tubman. One of them is uh, for a time there was some doubt about exactly, you know, where Harriet Tubman grew up. I mean, people knew the the plantation, but they didn't know like which cabin. But archaeologists have now determined that. So you can read about that. Also, we'll have a link to an article updating uh, the current status of the possibility of putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Excellent. Excellent. So, folks, that's it from us. Now it's your turn. What are your theories about Harriet Tubman and her amazing life and experience? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. Send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. Post in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619 619- 738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this and uh, other episodes of Mysterious World. They do an awesome job, so be sure and check out their website if you have uh, any video editing or animation business that you need done. Also, you can see their work on my YouTube channel. So be sure and go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. I recently got feedback from a listener who had always listened to the audio version of our podcast. And then he decided to check out the video version. And he was like, wow, the video adds so much. So do go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where you can uh, watch uh, Mysterious World videos as well as other videos that I do. And while you're there, I, I am trying to grow my YouTube channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you'll get a notification whenever I have a new Mysterious World or other video coming out. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, last week we heard about the living apparition of Marin County, where an elderly woman in one location was manifesting as a little girl in another location. This week we heard about Harriet Tubman having out-of-body experiences where her body was in one place, but she seemed to be somewhere else. The phenomenon of being in one place but appearing in another is called bilocation. And it happens in a variety of circumstances, both paranormal and religious, including with Christian saints like Padre Pio. So next week, we'll be looking at bilocation from both the paranormal and religious perspectives, what may explain it, and what it's like for the person who's bilocating. Excellent. As a parent, sometimes I wish I had that ability, but maybe not. And we'll talk about that next time. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Eakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Raising the Bets. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S.